Welcome to A Word Fitly Spoken, a podcast about Jesus, His Word, and our joy in following Him. I'm Amy Spreeman. And I'm Michelle Leslie. Today, we have a very special guest that we're going to talk with. He is first and foremost the pastor of Grace Baptist Church in Cape Coral, Florida, but most of our listeners will probably know him better as the head of Founders Ministries or, more recently, as an anticipated nominee for president of the Southern Baptist Convention. Brother Tom Askell, welcome. It is great to have you on A Word Fitly Spoken. Well, thank you, Michelle. Amy, it's uh, great to be with you ladies tonight. Appreciate the invitation. Uh, We sure do enjoy having you too, Tom. And for any of our listeners who might not be familiar with you, uh, why don't you go ahead and and just tell us a little bit about your family and your church and founders, and uh, also, if you wouldn't mind, sharing with us how you came to know Christ as your Savior. Yeah, I'd be glad to. Well, uh, Don and I have been married 42 years and uh, I have been the pastor of Grace Baptist Church in Cape Coral, Florida for 36 of those years. We have six children, five of whom are married, and uh, the oldest is not married. She's in College Station, Texas. She works as an administrative assistant for a church there. Uh, the other five who are married are in the church with us in Cape Coral with their spouses, and we have 15 grandchildren that are all there and one on the way. And so uh, oh, we're having wow. a wonderful time as grandparents right now. Um, the church is coming up on its 40th anniversary. I'm the second pastor. And like a lot of Baptist churches, sadly, it was started out of a split and uh, didn't have a very good beginning. And so um, shortly after it began, they had all kinds of problems. And um, there's a long story behind it. I'll spare you the details. But basically, I was in Texas and I was a pastor nobody wanted and they were a church nobody wanted. And so it turned out to be a pretty good marriage. And uh, it's worked out so far over 36 years or nearly 36 years this June 8th. And um, Founders Ministries has been around since 1982. And it was born in a prayer meeting. We had our first conference in 1983. And it's a ministry that's committed to the recovery of the gospel, and the reformation of local churches. Uh, it Again, it's, it does annual Founders Conference meetings. We have one coming up in January here in Southwest Florida, where Buddy Balkum and uh, myself and Paul Washer and Joel Beakey will be addressing the doctrine of man. And we'll have some others as well. That'll be our 40th anniversary as a ministry, actually, for that conference. And uh, we have a podcast that drops every week on Tuesdays, Sword in the Trial podcast. We publish books. Uh, we provide articles at founders.org. We just want to do whatever we can to encourage churches and and Christians to think seriously about the work of the gospel in our world today. And how did you come to know Christ as your Savior? Yeah, well, I grew up in a home with a godly mother. I'm the youngest of six kids. And uh, my mom was in, in, she had what would be called a very uh, difficult marriage today. Ours was a very difficult or what would be called today a dysfunctional family. Um, My dad had a lot of problems. He was the son of a Muslim immigrant and just had a very, very hard life uh, growing up. I uh, saw his dad murdered at his side when he was 10 years old and just had lots of complications from that. So there's a lot of difficulty uh, in my home, but my mom was godly. And I remember my earliest thoughts that I can recall about God were probably I was around three or four years old. And one morning, I just kind of walked into this living area of our home. And she was on her knees praying. 
And I just listened to her and watched her. And uh, she was pouring her heart out to God. And and I was deeply impressed that she really believed she was talking to somebody and somebody was hearing her. So she was very evangelistic um, for our children and or for her children and others as well. And so all six of us came to know Christ and uh, to her with the Lord already. And uh, the rest of us, by God's grace, are walking faithfully uh, with Christ. So my mom was uh, deeply instrumental in me coming to know the Lord when I was a child. Well, praise God for that. I know that's a, a real encouragement to maybe a lot of our single moms out there or moms that uh, their husbands aren't saved or, and things like that. So, wow, that is fantastic. And we praise God that He saved you. Well, amen. I do too. It's amazing <laughs> to me that He did. Yeah, it's always amazing to me that he saved me, too. I know it wasn't anything in me, so it must have been something in him. Um, right. So we mentioned earlier that you are a prospective nominee for the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, which is coming up June 14th and 15th in Anaheim, California. And let me just take a moment to say here, listeners, if you're Southern Baptist and there's any way possible for you to get to Anaheim to represent your church as a messenger, we want you to do that. And we want you to go and we want you to vote for Tom for president and for Vody Bauckham as president of the Pastors Conference. And we want you to study up on the resolutions as much as you'll be able to and get informed and vote biblically. So get there if you can. So, Tom, if you're elected president, what is the number one issue you think needs to be addressed biblically in the Southern Baptist Convention? And listeners, if you're not Southern Baptist, don't tune any of this out, because this is very likely already uh, an issue in your denomination or church, or it soon will be. Tom? Well, yeah, as I said, I grew up uh, in the Southern Baptist Church. I was married in a Southern Baptist Church, baptized in a Southern Baptist Church. I've served three different Southern Baptist churches on, in a pastoral capacity. And I've tried to be involved uh, as a local pastor in the life of the SBC. I was there for the conservative resurgence. And, um, and I would just say, you know, these last five to seven years or so, actually longer than that, but it's become more focused in the last five to seven years, the, the number one concern that I have as a pastor that participates in a church that voluntarily associates in the Southern Baptist Convention is that we need to recover a fear of God. Uh, I am yeah. convinced that we have lost the, the concept of what it means genuinely to fear God. So it, it hadn't taken me much time or effort to think about what I would want to emphasize as the number one concern if God were to be pleased to put me in the, the position of president of the SBC, it would be calling upon all of us to rekindle a proper biblical fear of God. Uh, I, I agree. Besides that fear of God, there are so many other issues, too, plaguing uh, churches today. And uh, l let's talk about some of those facing not only the SBC, but evangelicalism at large. Do you have kind of a, a, a list of things that you've seen maybe trending in, in churches? Yeah, yeah, I have. And it's uh, caused me to be increasingly outspoken uh, about concerns that I have seen over these last several years. And I've divided them up into two categories. Uh, and a lot of these relate to every evangelical church and every evangelical movement, uh, certainly in the United States, but even beyond that. And then some of them are, are unique to just the, the structure of the SBC. And the two broad categories are spiritual reformation and structural renovation. And I've already mentioned, you know, under spiritual reformation, we just need to return to a profound fear of God. I mean, the scripture is clear 
that this is a priority. That phrase, fear of God or fear of the Lord, is mentioned over 150 times in the Bible. And then the concept is taught way more than that. And uh, you've got Psalm 111, verse 10, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. And so if we want to think rightly about anything, it starts with coming to grips with the fact that we're created by God. We will stand before God to give an account to him. And our only hope of being reconciled to this God is through what he has done for us in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, by turning from our sin and trusting him. And we must live uh, on the basis of Christ. And as Jesus himself taught, don't fear those who can kill the body only, but fear him who can kill the body and cast your soul into hell. He said that to his disciples. And so we need to remember that and returned to that profound fear of God. And if we don't practice it, we're not going to have a good understanding. And I, I think that's just a classic diagnosis of what's going on in the evangelical world today when there seems to be so much foolishness, so much confusion. And if we would come back to the fear of God, I think many of these things would begin to uh, come into focus for us. Beyond that, I think we have a desperate need to face up to the unchanging law of God in our day. Uh, I love God's grace. I love the gospel. And uh, the law was never given to us to save sinners. Never. It, it can't do that. But I think sometimes we've been so afraid of legalism that we think that we have nothing to do with the law. But the God who gave us the gospel also gave us the law. And he loves his law as much as he loves his gospel. The law doesn't save us, but the law does govern us. It tells us what's right, what's wrong, what God requires of us. And you just read through Psalm 119, and you see how the psalmist loves God's law, delights in God's law, is able to understand and live well because he meditates on God's law. Well, I think Southern Baptists and evangelicals at large have lost uh, that sense of the goodness, not just the rightness, but the goodness of God's law. We need to come to grips with that again. And then, of course, to have a, a, an unashamed reaffirmation of the gospel of God. I, I think that, sadly, a lot of what we've seen today in the name of evangelism or trying to be uh, nice to the world or hope that people will like us um, because we have some evangelistic concerns has actually resulted in us compromising the gospel. So, you know, we hear things about uh, pronoun hospitality or uh, somehow needing to be sensitive to those that are caught up in all kinds of various perversions. And if we don't, uh, if we speak plainly to them about these things, then we're going to lose opportunity to to win them to Jesus. Well, uh, the, the gospel is inherently offensive and we don't need to be personally offensive. We should never do that, but we should never back away because people are offended at this gospel that declares that the only way wicked sinners can be saved to a holy God is through the slaughter of God's own son and turning from sin and entrusting themselves to him. And so I, I believe that uh, we need to get over our shame of the gospel, being ashamed of the gospel and reaffirm our commitment to it. And then out of those things, you know, to the whole concept of what a man is, what a woman is, we just heard a Supreme court justice appointee uh, declare she couldn't identify what a woman is because she's not a biologist. And I lay the blame of that largely at the feet of the church, that we need to be willing to declare this is what God says a man is, what a woman is. He created the male and female. There are only two sexes or genders, if you want to use the common parlance on that. And a man is a man by God's design, and he will never be a woman. And that is true of a woman as well. And, and the church needs to affirm that and recognize that God has prescribed certain roles for men and certain roles for women. And we can have debates about specifics on that, 
in some areas, but there should not be any debates among God-fearing, Bible-believing people about the role of pastors in local churches that God has reserved for qualified men and that women, no matter how godly they are, can never be a pastor. And you know, there's a, there's a variety of issues that relate to that. But let me just sum it up and say that God's design for men and women is good. It's right. And then tied underneath all of this is a return to the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. Uh, we have a lot of theor- theoretical inerrantists among evangelicals today. That is, they say they believe the inerrancy of Scripture. They would pass a theological test if you gave it to them on that issue. But when it comes right down to where the rubber meets the road and how they're going to live their lives, uh, the Bible is, is not always first and foremost, and nor is it the final authority that governs how we think, how we respond to the world, and how we live our lives. And so I, I don't think we're ever going to get over the battle for the Bible. Yeah. Then you know, those are the spiritual things. If I can just quickly talk about structurally, but a lot of our sure. friends that are Southern Baptists don't understand the polity of the Southern Baptist Convention. So the president of the Southern Baptist Convention doesn't really get to do much. He doesn't have much authority. Uh, in reality, he only has two uh, specific jobs that he can do to affect things, and that is to appoint the Committee on Resolutions the next year and to appoint the Committee on Committees. And then he does get to moderate the annual meeting and he's ex officio on all the trustees of the uh, different boards. But uh, there's not a lot of uh, inherent authority. But our system is such that there are structures in place, and, and some of them need to be retooled, like our trustee system. We're, we're living in a day when uh, the trustee system of the Southern Baptist Convention needs an overhaul. Because right now, when a person is appointed to be a trustee of one of our entities or agencies, they go for orientation by that entity or agency. And what tends to happen is the trustees wind up being similar to unpaid public relations staff or the entity, rather than holding the entity accountable in trust for the churches that paid for those institutions and entities own them and pray for them and uh, to whom the entities belong. So our trustee system needs attention. Along with that, we have a credentials committee in the Southern Baptist Convention that receives uh, concerns voiced by churches or members of our churches about other churches that may not be in keeping with Southern Baptist principles and friendly cooperation with, with the Convention of Churches. And so, for example, the Baptist faith and message is clear that only qualified men are to be pastors of churches. Well, there have been Southern Baptist churches that have recognized women as pastors. Uh, I've sent in uh, several churches like that. The Credentials Committee has the job of evaluating those concerns and then either recommending to the denomination, to the congregations that gather for their annual meeting each year in June that uh, a church be removed or to just dismiss it. And uh, I've never heard from the Credentials Committee, and I don't know how many times, at least half a dozen times, I have reported my concerns for churches, and I've talked to other pastors uh, who have done that as well. So our Credentials Committee needs to be given some authority and some guidance. It it needs to be uh, uh, given help to do the job that it's tasked to do, because right now they're not doing a very good job. Another thing that I'm concerned about is uh, every year at our annual meeting, we have hundreds, if not more, maybe over a thousand messengers that show up having gotten there on the cooperative program dime. That is, they work for entities and agencies. They represent those entities and agencies, but they come with their ways being financed by churches 
who give money to support those entities and agencies. And the, the, the Washington Post last year reported that the North American Mission Board sent numbers of church planners from urban centers to Nashville. And this is what the Washington, uh, Washington Post reporter said to vote for Ed Litton as president of the Southern Baptist Convention. Well, my church didn't want Ed Litton as president of the Southern Baptist Convention. So what that means is they took money we gave them and they used that to vote against what we as a, a congregation thought was best. So I, don't, I think we need to quit that process. We need to revamp that. And I know there probably have to be some, but it ought to be a limited number from every institution and agency that can, can come to the convention on the cooperative program dime as a messenger. If they need to come to represent those institutions, fine, let them do that. They can be guests, but they don't. They shouldn't have voting privileges uh, with their ways being paid by churches that they do not represent. Uh, another thing that we've got to address, because every evangelical church has to, is the LBGTQIA plus whatever it's going to end up being, uh, transgender movement. Uh, this is coming in like a flood, and we've seen it in the Revoice con uh, uh, Conference that has been largely uh, hosted by PCA people, but Southern Baptists have had some role in that, and, and uh, one of our Southern Baptist professors has endorsed it. We've got to determine very clearly how we're going to speak to this issue. I don't think we've done that yet. Uh, I would love to see greater transparency among our boards and agencies, and then I, I want to see a way for our Southern Baptist missionaries to become more involved in the life of our convention. And I, I think that's a should be a priority because those are the people on the front lines. And we don't want to say, hey, look, yeah, we're, we'll have you out there working. But yeah. if you're available to come to the convention, you can't speak. You can't be a messenger. So anyway, those are just some of the structural things I think we need to give attention to. Oh, absolutely. I, I want to bring up uh, this issue of sexual abuse that has come to light in the SBC a few years ago, and it's probably on a lot of our listeners' minds. Would you mind, could you give us uh, some of your thoughts on how this has been handled so far, and what is the best way to address that situation moving forward? Yeah, I think it's been handled miserably uh, in many respects, and I, I'm referring specifically now to our formal Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission President Russell Moore, who had a letter that was sent to his chairman of trustees in which he said that uh, a culture had been created where women were being raped and children were being torn apart. And that letter was sat on for 18 months before somebody leaked it in a very convenient time just before the convention last year. It was used for political purposes. There's no other way that I can uh, evaluate that. And so that's wicked. And we've seen recently in what's going on with Jennifer Buck, a pastor's wife in Texas, where uh, her story has been passed around by a professor at Southeastern Seminary and similarly been used to try to cast aspersion on the ministry of her husband and his church and their marriage. Yeah. It's wicked. And some of the people involved, some of the key people involved are the ones who have spent so much time signaling how virtuous they are in caring for the victims of, self, uh, of sexual abuse. So one of the things I'm concerned about is, number one, Southern Baptists better figure out quickly who we're going to listen to and who we're not going to listen to, because we've been listening to and following the wrong people on this issue. If we genuinely care about those who have been abused, and we certainly should, then we're going to need to uh, recognize that some people have been using this issue for political gain in the name of trying to help victims. So we, nobody knows what's in the uh, sex abuse task force report. It'll come out in the next few weeks, I guess. And uh, we ought to read it carefully and uh, we ought to read it without any fear 
anything that's in there that's that's that shows light on reality and some of it's probably going to be very bad and, and heartbreaking we don't have to fear that because whatever we discover christ already knows whatever sins are in there on the part of his people christ has already died for and there's re, there's opportunity for repentance there's opportunity for forgiveness there's opportunity for healing and restoration so we ought to own up to any sin and that's true in any church and any entity uh any entity that is found to be guilty in any level that needs to go to their trustees we have a system in place and that hasn't happened in the past i mean we have we have entities that have paid money to sex abuse victims and the trustees don't even know about it well that's wrong that's that's denying the churches the accountability that the trustees are designed to exercise for them uh, there might be some uh, issues that are uh, reported out or maybe some recommendations that we need to give serious attention to. And if uh, there are recommendations, we're going to need our best biblical theological minds to evaluate them because we cannot, in a moment of panic, simply say, well, we've got to do this. This is what the world says. And if we don't want to do what the world says, everybody's going to think that we don't really love people or care about victims. Well, look, you cannot care about uh, people who have been sinned against uh, wickedly more than God does. And God has given us his word. And so we're going to have to be wise with our biblical ecclesiology. We're going to have to be confident in the word. Uh, we're going to be have, have to be careful not to listen to the wrong people anymore. And uh, in prayer and humility, where necessary in repentance to look to God. And if we can put, in structure, put structures in place going forward that will help, then amen, let's do that. But we can't do that in, in violation of what the word of God says about the nature, the role, the relationships of a local church. And so we're going to need a lot of help, a lot of prayer. Pastors are going to have to step up and begin to maybe look more seriously at biblical ecclesiology than, than we have in recent decades, if not generations, because I think a lot of these problems have emerged because we have not taken seriously the nature, even of what we say we believe, about a regenerate church membership and a disciplined body of believers. If that were being if that were taking place, then anytime there's an abuser within the context of a local church, no matter if he's a seminary professor or if he's a member of a trustee board or some other agency, the local church to which that person belongs should deal with it and should deal with it directly without compromise based on the scriptures. If, if there's a crime involved, then hey, call the cops. Because the God's given the state to adjudicate crimes. He's given the church to adjudicate sins. And we should not try to play the role of the state. The state shouldn't try to play the role of the church. And, and we're going to have to think rightly and, and more deeply about those things, I think, that we have in recent years. Oh, amen. I so agree. And I think one of the one of the keys is something that you mentioned earlier about the authority of Scripture and the sufficiency of Scripture as well. I think a lot of these problems are coming about because we're, like you said, we're looking to the world for answers instead of looking to Scripture for answers. And we know that throughout, especially throughout the New Testament, Scripture tells us over and over and over again, you cannot hold hands with the world and hold hands with God at the same time. You just cannot do it. And and I think another issue that that sort of falls under that same umbrella is something else you mentioned a few minutes ago, the issue of women pastors. So let me ask you a couple of questions about that. Um last year Rick Warren's church, I always put that in little <laughs> air quotes. Uh but last year his church Saddleback ordained three women as pastors. 
Do you think that Saddleback and other churches that ordain or hire women to be pastors should be removed from the SBC? And then what about churches that don't have women on staff as pastors, but they allow women to preach to the whole congregation, even, say, just once a year on Mother's Day? That's coming up, so I'm sure we're going to see that again. Uh, Should those churches be removed from the SBC? Yes, on the, uh, the Rick Warren Church, Saddleback, uh, whenever they very publicly, publicly celebrated, that's their word, they celebrated wow. this new thing God was doing. Well, I, that moment, when I saw that online, I, that moment, sent a note to the Credentials Committee and said, this church needs to be investigated and removed. It's not in keeping with the Baptist faith and message, where we very clearly say that the, the office of pastor is limited to qualified men. So that's a no-brainer. Preaching is the function of the office of pastor, and the Bible very clearly teaches that you know, Paul says he doesn't allow a woman to uh, exercise authority or teach men. This is not what is to be done in the context of a local church. Does that mean that women are not as smart or godly as men? Not at all. Uh, he's talking about what's going on in Lord's Day worship there, and there should be no uh, confusion about this. It's not hard to understand. That's People get, they get uh, you know really... Uh, if it weren't so serious, it'd be funny in the way that they go through these exegetical gymnastics to take what Paul says about not allowing a woman to teach or exercise authority on men, over men and causing it to say, well, he does allow. We should allow. I mean, it's like you have to go 180 degrees opposite. It's not a matter of theology. It's not a matter of cultural context. It's a matter of simple grammar. If you just understand the grammar of the text, then uh, there won't be much confusion. So, yeah, I think uh, those things need to be addressed and I uh, the the Baptist faith and message is clear and we're either going to need to uh, to to restate things even more clearly in the Baptist faith and message or start requiring that our pastors pass a uh, a grammar proficiency test before they can be able to lead their churches into the convention because the grammar is clear as well yes it is and so so you do think that that churches who ordain or hire women to be pastors should be removed from the SBC. Any, do you want to share any thoughts about women or churches that just allow women to preach, but don't ordain pastors or don't have them on staff? Maybe that should be handled on a case by case basis if they'll repent or what do you think? Well, yeah, I mean, it's a little different, but it's not much. I mean, because you're talking about the function of a pastor rather than just the office. And in Baptist life, we don't recognize a distinction between function and office. And so if we're talking about a woman preaching to women or teaching women, that's fine. If you're talking about a Lord's Day worship service, which is Paul's concern there with his letter to Timothy, then that's a problem. I mean, that's a serious problem because the uh, the concern is how we ought to conduct ourselves in worship. He talks about prayer right before that. And then he addresses this issue of not allowing women to teach or exercise authority over men in that context. So, no, it's the same thing. If you're going to do that, you're violating Scripture. And, uh, and part of the difficulty, people don't like hearing this kind of plain uh, language on this, but we have boundaries. We have boundaries. And we've been pretty clear about where those boundaries are. What's happening today is we've got people, I think, caving into the feminist movement and saying, well, you know, you're denying women their gifts from God and uh, you're repressing women or oppressing women. And we're just saying, no, we have boundaries and you can't erase the boundaries. This is who we are. And if you're not going to live in friendly cooperation with who we are, then you cannot stay a part of this association of churches. Yeah. 
You know, Tom, for those of us who maybe are just consider ourselves the, um, you know, the average churchgoer, those who aren't pastors or denominational movers or shakers, uh, we can see these problems facing the SBC and really the entire visible church. And it could cause us to feel this helplessness because it seems overwhelming and hopeless, even though we know uh, Christ has won the victory, of course. But what are some specific practical things the average church member can do to help actively push back this darkness when it comes to these issues? Yeah, well, I think what you just touched on is one thing. You're not hopeless. You're not helpless. Right. I mean, Christ has been building his church for 2,000 years with very imperfect people, yes. sometimes in very dark places, dark times. Uh, a study of church history would be eminently helpful just to remind ourselves. You know, we think, oh, man, it's the worst of times. Well, um, you know, there, nobody's cutting off our heads yet in the United States. And there are things that our brothers and sisters around the world are experiencing right now that we're not. So we uh, perspective can be gained by studying church history. But first and foremost, pray. Uh, we have a God in heaven and Christ rules his church. He's head of the church and he's told us to pray. He's provided access for us. And so prayer actually does uh, gain us entry into the throne room of the sovereign God. And so we ought to pray with confidence and boldness. And then I would say, educate yourself. You know, don't close your eyes, but try to understand the issues. There's a lot of bad issues going on right now. I, you know, it took me years to get my mind around some of these things because I just kind of was had my head down trying to pastor the church, do what I was called to do locally. And I kept trusting other uh, evangelical spokesmen and people I'd trusted for you know, some of them decades to do their job, you know, to sound the, the alarm if something was going on. And it finally dawned on me after talking to some of them that, no, they they have been infiltrated too. And um, so educate yourself. It's easy to find out what's going on today. There's all kinds of resources online for free. For Southern Baptists, I would say this, but you'd say this to everybody. It's not Southern Baptist in your own church context or association of church context. Show up. You know, you can't do anything if you don't show up. And that's certainly true of the SBC. You got to show up at the meetings in your congregational meetings in your church in your associational meetings, either locally or in your state, and certainly in the SBC national meeting, um, there, there's a way to fix what's going on in the Southern Baptist Convention. But humanly speaking, it won't happen if you don't show up and vote con- your convictions that have been informed by the word, word of God and understanding what's going on. And then speak up. You know, everybody can write letters. Everybody can talk to their leaders and uh, ask their leaders uh, humble, humbly but very honestly questions about what's going on. And if you see things that are contrary to scripture, say, help me, you know, am I, am I wrong here? Is the, have I been reading the Bible wrong? Has the church read the Bible wrong for 2000 years? Uh, help me to understand this. And we just, we have to be willing to do that. We absolutely do. And that's, that's really great advice, you know, to, to those of us who just feel like we want to do something, but we're not really sure what that's, those are some great guidelines to follow. Well, you've been very bold and outspoken on some of these issues. Praise the Lord for that. And But I know you've gotten some really just downright ugly pushback, you know, when you have spoken out. And I think a lot of Christians look up to brothers like you and want to know, how can I speak boldly about these issues, even to my family and friends, without getting that kind of pushback, without jeopardizing my relationship with, the, with that person and, and so on. And if I can't, how do I deal with this, that kind of pushback that, you know, really seems ugly or people breaking their relationships with me or whatever? And then can you help us to see how Jesus is our perfect example in this kind of situation? 
Yeah, well, I mean, we certainly should do all that we can to avoid giving personal offense. Um, and, you know, as far as possible, as much as it depends upon you, live at peace with all people. And yet I'm reminded regularly of Psalm 120, which has almost become like my life psalm. You know, I am a man of peace, but when I speak, they are for war. And so sometimes, you know, you've got a choice between either speaking or uh, war. And if you're going to speak, then you're going to have to be prepared for war. So what what should be operating with well, a fear of God and loving God more than you love people. I mean, that's you can't really love people well if you don't love God supremely, because that's the first, the chief commandment. But then to love people genuinely and to understand what real love is. Our world has hijacked that word. You know, if you love me, you let me. If you love me, you wouldn't or whatever. No, 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 no. God gets to define what constitutes love. And so real love is willing to uh, tell people the truth. First Corinthians 13 says love rejoices in the truth. So anything that's being done in the name of love that compromises truth is not real love. And we just need to get that clear in our minds once again. And then I, I think, believe what the Bible says. I mean, the Bible tells us, Paul tells Timothy, that everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So it's not a question of if, it's, it's a question of when and how. And sometimes uh, we've even heard this taught recently that, you know, you Christians in America or, or some of our fellow Christians that you're talking about persecution. You guys are a bunch of uh, softies because nobody's cutting your heads off, throwing you in jail in the United States. Well, that's not the only kind of persecution there is. Jesus says in, in Matthew chapter five that we, should, we are blessed when people revile us and persecute us and say all kind of evil against us falsely for his name's sake. And he tells us what to do when that happens. Rejoice and be exceeding glad because that so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Great is your reward in heaven. Okay, well, why is it that we get uh, reviled? Why do people say hateful things about us? It's because we're trying to stand for Christ and his word. Well, if we're going to stand for Christ and his word, shouldn't we obey Christ and his word when he tells us what to do when people do that to us? Rejoice. Yes. Be glad. You know, one of the things our, my wife and I have learned to do over the last four years, uh, we were forced into it, but we wanted to take these verses seriously. So we started celebrating, you know, and some days I'd come home and uh, she would uh, know what had been happening in the broader evangelical world or maybe the church, but mostly in the broader evangelical world, people saying things about me and and uh, it'd be steak night, you know, or it'd be ice cream night. And we're going to throw a party that night. Sometimes we just invite people over and say, hey, you know, we're just having a party tonight. Why? Because, you know, it's, it's a time to rejoice. Uh, Jesus said to do it. We're going to do it. And, uh, you know, it's been, yeah, it's been great. I, you know, it's, it's, it's fine. fantastic. <laughs> um, but, you know, we, I mean, that's what the word says. And, and we're trying to stand for the word. So we got to obey the word here, too. And, you know, and I just I recommend that it's, it's helpful to kind of get your mind off yourself to avoid the poor me attitude. Uh, good night. You know, the Lord Jesus, <laughs> people say, well, if you're only more Christ-like, Tom, you wouldn't be so controversial. Well, you know, Jesus was pretty Christ-like <laughs> and they crucified him. So right. we shouldn't be surprised if they did this to our master, that these kinds of fallouts come to us too. And we should encourage one another to be joyful, uh, you know, to be happy warriors in the midst of these conflicts. 
Oh, indeed. You know, Tom, up here in uh, small town Wisconsin where I am, uh, my little church voted uh, last year to leave uh, the SBC. It was a unanimous decision. And uh, Michelle has mentioned that for now, her pastors have led her church to stay in and help to fight that good fight to change the direction of the SBC. So pastors and church members are being faced with some pretty tough decisions about you know whether they're going to stay or leave. What advice would you give to pastors who are trying to lead their churches through this decision? And how would you encourage church members to submit to their pastor's leadership on this as uh, Hebrews 13, 17 instructs us? Yeah, so I mean, this is a tough question. And and this is between a a pastor and God or a church and God. You can't be Lord over anyone's conscience in these areas. I don't think there's a one size fits all here. And I've seen a lot of good churches leave the SBC. I understand it. You know, I'm sad about it, but I understand it. And I've seen a lot of good churches stay in the SBC and try to make it better. And that's what our church is doing. So here's what I say to pastors and Southern Baptists. If you're going to stay in the Southern Baptist Convention, then don't be passive, be active, stay in to fight for the health of the SBC. And study the word, study the issues, and then work diligently to try to bring the SBC into conformity with the word as we address the issues that are confronting us today. And I've got friends that think that I'm way out there. They disagree with me on the issues and the strategies for addressing the issues. That's fine. But you can't just be passive and and roll over and pretend like there's nothing wrong. Good night. I've got a, a laundry list that I could rattle off the top of my head of problems that have come up, major problems in the Southern Baptist Convention that have not been addressed well. And if we're going to be a convention of healthy churches, we're going to have to start addressing these things and do things uh, differently. So uh, contend for the faith once we're all delivered to the saints. That's something every Christian's called to do, every church is called to do. And if you're in an association of churches like the SBC, uh, contend, contend for it within that association. And if you can't do that, I understand it. Uh, God bless you. But wherever you go and however you connect with other churches, just realize the battle doesn't change. Um, you, you may have different fronts on which you'll have to fight, but the battle is always going to be there for us. It sure is. And, you know, so so often, especially in the SBC, we see so many problems and it just seems like it's a constant battle and it's it can be really discouraging. And a lot of people, even a lot of people looking in from the outside of the SBC We'll, we'll just say, they'll say things like, um, you know, God doesn't need the SBC or the SBC isn't worth saving. Why don't you just get out? And so I'd like to know, why do you think the SBC is, is worth saving both for Southern Baptists and for Christians outside the SBC? I see it as a matter of stewardship at this point. I mean, there have been a lot of people over a lot of generations that have invested a lot to see good things happen in and through the Southern Baptist Convention. Right now, we have the largest missionary force in the world. There's a lot of good that's being done. Can we do better? Absolutely. We must do better. But praise God for the good that's being done. Uh, We educate one-third of all seminary students in the United States. And that's not because we're one-third of all the Christians or the Christian churches in the United States. And so we have a tremendous impact beyond our footprint in the evangelical world. And the Southern Baptist Convention is not going away. If all the good churches left tomorrow, it's going to continue on. It's just going to continue on like the PCUSA. It'll be in the hand of really bad actors, and it will be an increasingly uh, wicked uh, conduit for the works of the devil. And we 
you know, I, I would hope would want to avoid that if we can. You know, we may not be able to, but I think we owe it both to the heritage and that which has been handed down to us. And as a matter of stewardship of what God's entrusted us to do in this generation to try. And I'm committed to doing that. That's that's really the reason I was uh, brought to a point of saying, OK, you know, well, you need to consider letting yourself be nominated for president. Um, and, you know, it's, it's my small way of saying, OK, I'll try to do more than I've done thus far. But it, it matters. The Southern Baptist Convention, the, the kingdom of God will go on without the Southern Baptist Convention. No doubt about that. But the Southern Baptist Convention matters. What happens in it and through it matters to Christians throughout the West and around the world. We export what we have here. If what we have here is not healthy, then we export that lack of health around the world. But if we get it right here and get it healthy here, then we are a blessing Amen to the world. To that. Well, speaking of those those bad actors that you mentioned, in recent years, the in the last two to three months leading up to the annual meeting, we've seen a number of incidents that could be described as, say, dirty tricks or political maneuverings that have been meant to influence the SBC presidential election and also the just the direction of the SBC at large. And again, this year, we've seen that kind of ugliness rear its head again. Can you give us your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's wicked. Amen. It's godless. Yes, it is. And these these people who are perpetrating this, and some of them do it in the name of virtue, and they want to signal and say, oh, how brave they're being. Look at me. I'm a whistleblower. Uh, no, you're not. You're acting as a godless individual here, violating the very word of God. We have a book, and we need to decide whether or not we're going to be more than just theoretically committed to the word of God. This is why we need to change the direction in the SBC. I mean, th- th- this is why I've been so involved in trying to to do what I can to call attention to these things and say, we must plead with God and work hard to change the direction of the SBC. Ultimately, it goes right back to my number one priority. There's no fear of God before the eyes of these people. I've said that to some of them. So you can't act this way and tell me you fear God. You are, you are trying to please people. You fear people. You do not fear God because one day you're going to stand and give account to God and he's going to measure you by his holy word. And you have violated that word. And you think that you've been virtuous in doing it, and and you will have to answer to God. And and it's not because you've been ignorant. You have been willfully uh, unwilling to bow to the authority of Jesus Christ as he's revealed it in his word. So I I think it's just godlessness. I I mean, I don't don't know how to explain it. I I asked some people, one guy (laughs) who was just guilty of a lot of godless activity, I said, hey, did Jesus have to die on the cross for you to do these kinds of wicked things? Or could you have done them if we'd never had a Savior come into the world? Because the way you're living seems like there doesn't matter that we have a crucified, risen Savior. And I, I just feel compelled to be that blunt, that direct, yes. because some of these things are that wicked. Mm, and you have to be. Tom, is there anything else that we haven't maybe asked you about, but that you'd like to share with our listeners uh, before we close? Well, yeah, thank you for that. I mean, I don't know if God would have me to be the president of the SPC or not. Uh, if he does, then I'm going to continue on with the primary calling he's given me in my life. If he doesn't, I'm going to continue on with the primary callings he's given him in my life. So while it'll change my schedule some, it won't change who I am and what my sense of stewardship of what God's called me and given me to be. And so, uh, you know, I would encourage and ask people if they think of it to pray for me that uh, the Lord's will would be done and that I would be useful in whatever capacity he puts me in. And if you're Southern Baptist, I would plead with you get to Anaheim. Uh, 
right now they're anticipating more than 10,000 people showing up, whereas last summer they were saying maybe 4,000, 5,000. I don't think that those extra people are going because they're happy with the direction of the SBC. Now, you know, I could be wrong. I don't know. I'm not God. But those of us who are concerned need to show up, and it's hard. I, I've been heartened. I, you know, I've got a pastor friend in Mississippi who's got a, a minibus in his church, and they are charging $100 per seat, taking anybody that wants to go as a messenger, going to drive there. That, that 100 bucks will pay for gas and getting there. They're, they're just going to go there, vote, turn around, come back. Uh, there mm-hmm. are people who have told me they're going and sleeping in their cars because they can't afford hotel rooms. And I, that's the kind of commitment that it's going to take. We can change the direction of the SBC, but humanly speaking, the only way we can do that is by showing up and voting for a president who will begin a process that will take years because of our Southern Baptist polity. But it's got to start. And the starting point is always harder than continuing it. And so I would just uh, encourage Southern Baptists, if you agree with the things we've talked about tonight and are on this podcast, then, yeah, show up for that. We need Mm -hmm. reformation and revival. And only God can do that. I'm not interested in slapping a Band-Aid on the Southern Baptist uh, problems, the things going on right now. We need God to work. And so we must be praying. And we must not settle for superficial or half measures to the the problems that afflict us. We have to humble ourselves before God and say, oh, Lord, we have sinned. Have mercy on us and revive your work in the midst of these years among your people. Amen. Tom, as we close things out tonight, how can our listeners connect with you online? Yeah, well, I'm uh, I'm on Twitter. Uh, I think it's Tom Askell. It's at Tom Askell on Twitter. Um, I'm on Instagram, too. I think it's Thomas Askell there. Um, Facebook, Tom Askell. Um, you can go to founders.org and connect with me there. Our church website is called truegraceofgod.org. Um, so, you know, any of those ways, I'm pretty easy to find. I've, I've uh, lived a pretty public life in the last several years, so I'm not really hard to find online. Well, thanks so much for giving us all those um, those addresses and everything. And, you know, I've, I've been telling my readers for a long time, if you want to know what's going on in the Southern Baptist Convention, you need to follow Tom Askell and Tom Buck on Twitter, and you'll know what's going on in the SBC. So we will definitely include those in the show notes. Well, Brother Tom, it... It has been such a joy chatting with you on the show today. I feel like I've been to church and, and that's one of the reasons, that's one of the reasons I want to see you voted in as president because you have the heart of a pastor and you have the agenda of a pastor to see things be done biblically, to see the SBC restored to, uh, fidelity to scripture and all of these things. And so it has just been such a joy. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. My privilege. Thank you for having me on. Appreciate what you ladies are doing. And uh, I love your uh, podcast. I love the, the writings. And, and uh, Michelle, I've followed you on Twitter. Uh, Amy, I don't know. Are you on social media? I am. In fact, we do follow each other, but uh, I, I okay. go by kind of a, a funny name. So <laughs> I'll, I'll remind you of who I am. It, it's Aspree, just Aspree Berean. <laughs> Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. Okay. Well, good. Well, I'm glad to know that's who you are. Okay. <laughs> that's Very me. I'm, I'll, I'll give you a little howdy after this, but uh, we really appreciate you being on with us. Yeah. Well, All my right. joy. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Well, listeners, that's going to do it for this episode of A Word Fitly Spoken. We're going to have all of Tom's links in our show notes today, of course. Be sure to stop by a awordfitlyspoken.life to check out all of our other resources and to support us on PayPal or Patreon if you so desire. 
And until next time, book your flight to Anaheim. Vote for Tom and Vody and walk worthy.